We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from where we record today. The Wandri people of the Kulin Nation, the Ngunnawal people of Ngunnawal Country, the Bindul people of Thalgariwaja, and the Walgaru Kaaba people of Garambilbara. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and any First Nations people listening in today. We recognise First Nation people's deep connection to land, water, and culture. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to another episode of Loud, Angry and Not Sorry, a podcast where we talk about news and current events from a feminist perspective. My name is Steph and joining me is... Hi everyone, it's Leah. As you know. (laughs) Yeah, well, hi. Hey, what's going on? Sad news. My cat's not well. Oh no, really? I didn't know that. Or did I know that? He's... Did I know that? I don't know. We think he ate a poisoned cockroach because he likes eating cockroaches. They all like eating cockroaches. And I've just sprayed the house and like he's hiding under my bed. And I gave him a day to kind of just like sleep it off because the last time he did this to himself, he bit Flea on the back of the neck after she had just been wormed. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, he's been under the bed. Don't do drugs, kids. (laughs) Don't do (laughs) anti-health. <laughs> not cool. <laughs> no, just say no. Yeah, so he's been sleeping under the bed and got him up last night to give him some food and some water and he looked really weak. But he woke me up at three o'clock this morning with this massive fart and a stretch. Oh, he's got a hangover. Yeah, pretty much. We're taking him He's to coming the down, man. Give him a break. Get him some ginger ale and like, I don't know, some KFC. <laughs> A d- dirty quarter pounder with some lemonade. Yeah. 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 We're taking him to the vet just to make sure, but um, he seems to be recovering. But it was it was a very long night. Imagine if the vet is just like, yeah, you know what this kid needs? Drugs. A slurpee. <laughs> Hair of the dog. Hair of the dog. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. This isn't funny. Oh, your poor kitty. I hope they get better soon. Which one of your 700 cats is this one? This one's Philip. Oh, Philip. I like Philip. Everyone, he's more popular on, on Twitter gorgeous. than I am. <laughs> well, look, that's how Twitter is with cats and animals. Yep. Mm. How are you doing? Me? Yeah. Uh, you know you know how it be. <laughs> um, I don't really know at any given stage what reality is and what my own perception of my current life. At the moment, it feels good, but I don't trust it. So we'll just wait this out until it feels shit again and then I'm like oh yeah see <laughs> told you it was too good to be true our reality has come back Every, yeah everything's pretty good at the moment reality farted in the elevator <laughs> yeah yeah so this episode we're going to be talking about prison abolition and we have a really cool episode with Karen Fletcher who is on the board of Flat Out Inc um, it, which is a very cool organisation that works directly with women who have experienced criminalisation and or incarceration and to improve the rights and conditions of women and gender diverse folk in the prison system. As a stopgap before you burn the prisons down. <laughs> yes. Soon, soon, soon. This is stage one. Stage two, matches and molotovs. <laughs> yeah. We want to acknowledge the privilege of learning about the horrors of the prison complex as opposed to experiencing them. We would usually have someone on with lived experience, but we couldn't get it to work this time around. You know, COVID. I mean, also, like, the trauma. Yeah. (laughs) And re-traumatisation. Yeah. Yeah. We did try, and so at the end of the show, we want to point you towards resources of the voices of people with lived experience. You know, go and check those out and share 
very important. Please share this stuff around and actually mm. elevate these voices because, and so what we want to do with this episode is um, provide some, some basic groundwork um, into what prison abolition is and what it is not. Because, you know, Sky, fuck you, Sky. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you saw yeah. Mark Latham going on about critical race theory. I actually managed to skip that whole thing. Like, I saw some really funny stuff on Twitter. Uh, I mean, again, this is this is the privilege of learning about things instead of experiencing them is that I was able to switch off from that. And that is absolutely a privilege. Yeah. <laughs> like I was just like, I'm not engaging in this where a lot of people of color, indigenous people don't have that luxury. Yeah. I mean, it's I don't think that should stop us from talking about it, but I think it's something that we need to be very mindful of. Yeah. It's important to start these discussions where we can. Yeah. You know, this country is still very, very fucked up in so many different ways and not just because of so things racist. like deaths in custody yeah. and, and over-representation in, in incarceration statistics, which sounds so mm. gross when you actually say it because this is the language that gets used. Mm. Not we lock up First Nations who make up 3% of the, in, of the population of this colony, but that they represent massive population within the prisons. Mm. And it gets sanitised. So we think of it from a perspective of statistics and numbers. But each one of those statistics, that's a person. That is a human person. Those are real live 10-year-olds that are in prison. Yep. The criminal age of responsibility in this country is 10 years old. It's fucked. And the fact that our government, that went to government and they voted it down, is like ultra, like there's not even a word for how fucked that is. Uh, What is it? The The UN has called us out on this. Something like 41 members. Oh, the UN talks about us constantly. How Dutton and Morrison not in The Hague right now? Because we haven't actually gaff taped them up. All right. All right. Give me... All right. 10 minutes. <laughs> Give me 10 minutes. I'll be there. I've got some tape in my bag. Let's go. Look, the important thing is to weigh them so that you don't get charged excess customs and duties. No, that is not a fat <laughs> joke. That is proper freight handling. <laughs> Can we just sla- slap fragile on their faces and just put them in like a base case thing? No? Dog crate. Dog crate. Yep. Also, while we were on the sort of the subject of this sort of stuff, I mean, the whole thing is about this sort of stuff. I really wanted to quickly touch on coercive control because we do talk about it later, especially in the interview with Karen Fletcher. The criminalization of coercive control has been in the media thanks to certain... Um, pastoral feminists however coercive control can best be explained as a pattern of behavior used by a person to dominate and control their family members or partners examples of coercive control include insults surveillance withholding funds violence and threats all right what does that sound like to you steph it sounds like men Sounds like cis dudes. It, it sounds like toxic patriarchal values, but it also sounds to me very much how this government treats poor people, sex workers, refugees, indigenous people, and disabled folk. Yep. Yeah. I think we need to really acknowledge how deep and ingrained coercive control is in this country. Like, it's not just interpersonal relationships. It's pervasive. I'm sure all of you have heard about Indu. What you might not have heard about is Basics. Basics was the dry run of Indu, and it applies only to Indigenous communities within um, parts of the Northern Territory and I believe Queensland. Was that part of the intervention? That was part of the Northern Territory intervention that had Mm. to have the Racial Discrimination Act suspended over this particular piece of legislation in order to proceed and be legal. Legal is such a gross word in this context. Um, Yep. In order for John Howard to send Australian Defence Force troops to 
townships. It's horrific. It's horrific. How how did we as a country, how did we sit by and just be like, this is okay? A lot of like, us weren't. And the justification that was there was, my God, think of the children, pornography, and alcohol. Like, it was heavily, <laughs> heavily Christian morals. It was a mission trip for Christian, the Christian church. Do you want to have a conversation around Christian morals and how children... And women are treated. Like, do we really want to have that conversation? We probably about should. the child migration program, about the Magdalene laundries, about churches protecting pedophile priests. Otherwise, like, they're hell, rock spiders. The missions that stole children from First Nations families. The church is actually not protecting children and women and families. They're dividing people and they're controlling people. They're stealing labour from people that they classify as, like, unworthy. It's fucked. Sorry, sorry. It just it makes me so mad. And this is why coercive control cannot be criminalised. It's so pervasive. The moment that you involve police into um, interpersonal relationships is the moment that they will end up taking a side. Well, we, we already know that the First Nations people, that poor people, massively disadvantaged when it comes to, to laws. They're always the first ones to be prosecuted. They're the first ones to get picked on. In a nutshell, criminalisation is not going to end coercive control. It hasn't ended rape. It hasn't ended murder. It hasn't ended racism. It hasn't ended misogyny. Making these things illegal doesn't actually stop it, especially if the system is predicated on the fact that coercive control is helpful. It's punitive and it just serves the state. It serves no one else but the state. It's a, it's a means of control and power. Um, should we talk about the history of prisons? Ah, uh, where to begin? So, basically... Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. But let's not, because I think the, the beginning of like prisons was like 1500 BC in like Babylonian times. So let's not go back that far. What was really cool about way back when, like billion, trillion years ago, is that like uh, the, the victim survivors or the person who had had harm done to them were actually allowed to choose the course of punishment for the person. Which sounds good in theory. Just going to throw that out Good there. in theory, because if it was just me, like <laughs> rubbing my hands together with glee... <laughs> Basically, True. basically, laws had to be established under religious code in order to not get to the point where essentially you're murdering people over a stolen loaf of bread. Anyway. True. Okay. Way to ruin the buzz. Fuck. Look, I, I object to the deployment of the power of the state in any way. So so way back in the, in the day, prisoners were held in cells or in yeah. shackles until they were executed. Um, executions yeah. were public, gruesome, and horrific. Then obviously, you know... Um, the first establishment of a state of what would resemble uh, come to resemble a state police force was uh, um, in. So I mean, there was a, essentially you know like the U.S. had or what would eventually become the full United States had the slave division, um, uh, which was basically to go around and find and capture mm. and then return slaves. Didn't always happen in that way. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's really sorry. It's really important to remember that the police in America started off as a slave division. Yeah, the, and the only thing that's changed really is the badge used to have slave division yeah. on it, like the star badge, and they mm. just replaced it with police. Yeah, because it was actually quite common back in the 1700s and stuff for people in the communities to actually hide slaves from the slave owners. Like, that wasn't uncommon. And that's why the 
this this slave division was developed to to find this property and return it to their owners, which is how like black people were were described essentially. Where to begin with this? Essentially, um, rounding people up and putting them in dungeons and prisons and castles and yeah. things has always been a thing for, yeah. for Europe. Tower of London. It. Massive tourist Absolutely attraction. Absolutely love it. <laughs> and the rules really changed depending on how rich you were. Like, for example, you could have daily from mm. the Tower of London. No shit. You could pop out for lunch. But essentially, prisons have always been corrupt. Um, as industrialization started to ramp up, we started poor houses, yeah. which were essentially prisons. You know, you see the language changing from uh, changing towards penitentiary, the idea of paying a pence to society that started to um, develop within the within Europe and the United States. The London police were actually formed in response to um, dock workers apparently yes. stealing stock from the docks. Because you can actually map that with the union movement in England. And you can also do a little bit of that to the fire mm. brigade as well. Yeah. Interesting. You basically go, the state has come to the conclusion that it needs to do certain things in order to protect mm-hmm. capital yeah. production and labor. You know, the police were there to protect property. Yeah. As were the fire brigade. And it used to be that essentially you had uh, had to pay insurance. And if you didn't have insurance, the fire brigade would let your no house burn down. Shit. Unless it threatened other properties. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. And the first fire codes were actually caused by the loss of human capital in terms of firefighters in buildings that collapsed while they were on fire, while people were trying to be rescued. And prisons were basically there to round up everyone who... What was it? The, the detritus of society. I can't remember who put that put it that way. But, you know, it was rounding yeah. up poor people. It was rounding up sex workers. People of ill repute. Like, it was literally done as, as morality policing. And yet those same crimes in the, in the upper class yeah. weren't even yeah. punished in this way. And so the idea of modern justice that we all have come to know and grow up in sort of came up about around Mm. the turn of the century and this idea that we needed to be moving away from penitentiary to you know a statutory based system you know rehabilitation must not waste that education that has just been Mm. spent on this person yeah you can track that with the education system like skipping back a few steps there like the end of slavery essentially meant that they had to find and by i mean they i mean the state had to find another way to procure free labor and indentured labor did that very well within the prison complex well it didn't even need the prison complex essentially because um freed slaves had absolutely no education Mm. Um, yeah and do you know who, the story of Juneteenth, which has been made a public holiday in the United States? Because <laughs> nobody bothered to go to the South and tell slaves that, that slavery had been abolished, and it was quite some time. Mm. Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Procl- Proclamation was issued on January the 1st, 1863, and it wasn't until riders from the North came down um, and told them in June 19th. It took two years for the message to reach... Mm. The abolition of slavery doesn't begin with the Emancipation Proclamation. You can say that it never actually ended in the United Mm. States. Yeah. Because it's not just about prisons themselves. It's about the entire structure of their society is based around either cheap or free labor that is exploitable. Yeah, that essentially capitalism. Full capitalism. Capitalism only works if someone's being exploited. And we can see that clear level of power and control or as uh, French philosopher Michel Foucault would say, discipline and punish. And I don't want to talk about Foucault too much because, like, 
look, the book's fine, his philosophies are fine, they're good, etc. But Foucault also had, like, weird ideas around the age of consent. So, like, I grain of salt, like, I think some of his concepts are interesting. But also what you said, Steph, before about the fact that has Foucault even been in prison? <laughs> we could... Foucault, as a cis white man, is power. You know what? I mean, that's, that's, that is worth a Google. Has <laughs> Michael Foucault been to prison? Isn't Google wonderful? Yeah. I love Google. I mean, stop fucking stealing my identity, but like also, yes. It doesn't look like he actually went to prison at all. Look, grain of salt. I do, I do find his philosophies very interesting, but they are only ever philosophies and they're only ever ideas. So... Mm. Mm. whatever like I don't know I think we tend to center the the thoughts and the feelings and the the theories of cis white men over people with lived experience like talking about gender and sexuality as like a white dude and I'm like maybe we might not listen to him on that maybe he might not be the authority on that topic I digress but fair assessment so (laughs) Far often than not in these conversations, it is literally dominated by cishet white people and particularly cishet white dudes. Yes. And and this is where white feminism really enforces this. White feminism mm-hmm. is not only the, yes. the enforcer of this entire system, it's the justification in, at times of the system existing in the first place. There are so many arguments that centre around either mm. think of the children and protecting women and girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so often we are like, like even like feminist writers will talk about Marxism instead of just being like, the fuck does that guy know? We still center all of our response and our work on researching the ideas of cis white men on our own experience in our own lives. Like that's fucking ridiculous. Is that not ridiculous? Utterly. Like feminist Marxism. What? Look, I still haven't managed to read all of Capital, but so far it's just it's just a log of like what capitalism is. Like great. Like we live in capitalism now. Like we are living capital. So we don't actually need to read Marx to go like, oh, okay, like good. What we 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 need to read more Angela Davis. Like not Marx. Lots of codes. I digress. Wool and coats. Lost. Just fucking... Anyway, however, I am going to um, start talking about Foucault again for just a quick cheeky minute. Because actually, I even though saying all of that, I do think his ideas are interesting. However, like most of the things that they say, a lot of cis white men say about social injustice and things like that, when you actually look at it, you're just like, well, yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Anyway. Okay, so what Foucault posits is that Prisons don't function to rehabilitate, but to defend the power of the ruling class, which I really like this. I don't think he's the first one to describe it, though. But it, and, this is, and this is my other argument. <laughs> Sorry, I fucking hate philosophers. Because Foucault stole this from somebody else. It wouldn't yeah. shock me, because the thing with cis white dudes is that they quite often aren't the first person to think about this or to even say it, but they're the first person to write it down and have it published or have it widely received or have it be known. That's the difference. It is entirely the rock and roll. The yeah. rock and roll philosophy. Rock and roll was, was invented by not only um, black musicians, but specifically one black lesbian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sister Ro- Rosetta Tharp. Yes. She was one of the first. Yeah. Her name is not associated with this. Yeah. But, it, but it's the kind of thing of going, this concept of... of what crime and punishment actually is, 
it's ingrained in, in the writings of black feminists going back to well and truly turn mm. of the century. Sojourner Truth. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Okay. Let's not talk about it from a Foucauldian perspective. So prisons don't function to rehabilitate, but to defend the power. And how do we test this theory? What? I mean, you don't have to answer these questions, but just, just for people to have a yeah. think about. The percentage of reported rapes where perpetrators see jail I'm time. looking at the Australian Parliament. Yeah, the number of sex workers who were arrested and fined. Gee, how many, uh, how many sex workers were fined in Victoria as opposed to skiers who returned from Aspen and didn't quarantine? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. The number of Indigenous children incarcerated. The number of Indigenous folk incarcerated, just like in general. We already spoke about yeah. this earlier. The number of Indigenous deaths in custody. The number of cops who were responsible for the deaths in custody. How many of them are in custody now? The number of days that Dyson Hayden spent in prison for that well-known secret that he sexually assaulted his colleagues. Zero. Yeah, zero. How many days did Pell spend in prison before his pedophile conviction was squashed? Like, I think that might have been a couple of months, but not long. He's got enough to write a book about his trials and tribulations. How long did Alan Jones spend in prison for inciting a race riot? Zero. How long did the folk responsible... $30 million. $30 million for the Leppington Triangle instead of $3 million. How long did they spend in prison for fraud? Zero. Like, I could, I could go on. The $500 million for the Great Barrier Reef Fund that was tracked down to a shed in yeah. Kangaroo or, Island. Oh, my God. Sports, Sports rorts. Yeah. All of this shit. All of this shit. But it's, it's robo-debt that's the problem. Yeah. It's, it's the, the people on welfare that are the and problem. Was... And that goes all the way back to the point that Foucault makes about that prisons punish and controls those who are not considered useful to the state and to the ruling class and just a mere slap on the wrist to those who they do consider useful. And this also explains, again, once again, Christian Porter, why he won't see jail time, why Dutton sorted out the au pairs but blocked refugee visas, like all of this shit. Oh, my God, I'm so angry. (laughs) The system is so corrupt. It is so corrupt. So this leads us into the modern prison system, and which is the system which is supposed to rehabilitate, uh, which we spoke about earlier. But Plato first spoke about prisons as rehabilitation in the laws in around 1500 BC or whatever or something like that. So there's like another reason to hate Plato. I mean, for me, the first one is that everyone used to think that Socrates was like this massive stinky douchebag until Plato, who was like one of Socrates' students, wrote him into all of his plays as like a really cool dude. And um, he isn't. He's a really shit cunt and massive douchebag. But anyway. The good place line of who died and made Plato king. (laughs) It's so true, though. Oh, my God. And everyone just thinks, oh, you're a fucking used to write in Greek a million years ago, so you must be cool. They're, They're not, not cool. They're misogynists. Anyway. They kept slaves and they, had, and they were misogynists. They hated women so much. Just Google, how did how did um, Socrates speak about his wife? And you'll just be like, well, you're a fucking MRA cunt, aren't you? Uh, so, look, I would argue that prisons are sold to us as means of rehabilitation because if we thought about them as restrictive torture devices that penalise poor people like they are, we maybe wouldn't be in such in favour of maintaining them and the state literally needs prisons to function. Yeah, like unemployment, prisons... Prisons yeah. are a vital um, yeah. part, part of capitalism for a variety of reasons. There was something in an article that was talking about how the economy actually leverages off 
yeah. unemployment. It controls inflation using unemployment. And calls, it controls the wage price. And also because it messes around with supply and demand of labour. Mm, that's right, yes. If you have unemployed people, an employer can always offer less than what they're paying their current workers in order to uh, create scarcity. Uh, so if we look back at feudalism slavery and now the prison complex we have the illusion of social change and progress but they're all the same picture deeply rooted in race class power and oppression and if you think if you're one of those people if you're a scott morrison and you think that we didn't have slavery in this country uh you're wrong (laughs) first nations folk on sugar fields first nations folk who were promised wages when they were working on the farms and they just weren't paid and like who could they go to like they did not have unions back then and they weren't considered people yeah, don't even. I can't. Oh, fucking hell! This country's no. disgusting. We got work for the doll schemes. Schemes where folk with disability work in factories for shit wages, and then they have to pay for their equipment and their high vis and all that kind of stuff, which comes out of their already shit wages. Then we got fruit picking. There are just there are so many forms of slavery. That we don't call slavery, but they are slavery. Economic exploitation. Or deeply rooted in slavery. Again, we have these wonderfully fancy, um, nice sounding, sanitized sounding uh, phrases and words that just basically go, no, we are literally enslaving you, just not in in the way that the history books describe, but you literally have no free will. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. So I suppose the history of prison abolition can be traced to a Norwegian socialist called Thomas Matheson. And his book, The Politics of Abolition, in 1974. Abolition didn't actually gain serious traction until the rise of the war on drugs in 1980s. Angela Davis, in Our Prisons Obsolete States, the massive prison building project that began in the 1980s created the means of concentration and managing what the capitalist system had implicitly declared as a human surplus. In the meantime, elected officials and the dominant media justified the new draconian sentencing practices, sending more and more people to prison in the frenzied drive to build more and more prisons by arguing that this was the only way to make communities safe from murderers, rapists and robbers. Sounds a little Nazi. Yeah. And they got theirs from the UK. Yes. Or Britain, I should say. Great Britannia. But yeah, it sounds a little Nazi. So, young Stephanie, what is prison abolition? (sighs) Burning everything down. No. (laughs) (laughs) Eating the rich. Or... As a, a good mutual friend of ours uh, once got into the ethics of composting the rich. <laughs> Turns out nice. it's halal and kosher. Nice. For abolitionists, there are basically three pillars. Um, moratorium, stop building cages. Decarceration, getting folks out of prison. And excarceration, finding alternatives to prison and ending the prison system. It's basically the... Uh, the breaking down of bricks and mortar prisons and looking for better better strategies and prevention. Previous approaches to crime and justice, I hate that term, mm-hmm. moves away from this idea that crime is just a thing that happens and those who do it need to be punished and exploited to crime is yeah. a symptom within society and usually has a lot to do with yeah. a, with needs not being met. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there are two groups, non-reformist reform and reform reformists, which is like so much fun to say. (laughs) So when we say end the prison system, we mean tear those fucking downs, not fix or change. Not like the ALP. Yes. Don't, Don't do an elbow. So there are two categories, which are, they are both equally fun to say. Don't get me wrong. 
But non-reform reformists in the context of prison abolition work to end solitary confinement, death penalties, and the building and the expansion of prisons. Whereas reform reformists <laughs> maintain the current system, they might suggest tweaks and changes and new legislation and more laws, but they don't actually do anything to dismantle the current system of power and, and the power imbalances. We're looking at carceral feminists here, the Nordic model. You know they've rebranded it to the equality model. Look, I've heard I've heard Nordic model, I've heard asymmetrical decriminalization, I've heard decriminalization light, I've heard all kinds of nonsense. Because they know that the Nordic model is a toxic name. It's it's the toxicest of all toxic especially considering like you can call shit whatever you want to sh- call it it's still going to be generally shit. speaking if there is a, if there is model in the title it's going to be bad mm. there is not a one size fits mm. all that's my rule for like women's <laughs> parties if you've got a political party or a feminist party that that has women in the title going to be a bad time because it centers our humanity and our rights on the fact that we're women, which is just... It, it, it's very kind fucked. of um, turfy, sex-based anyway. rights thing where you're sitting there going, actually, we had yeah. those and they yeah. didn't work yeah. out for us. And it also includes fuckheads like Michaela Cash and Julie Bishop. Yeah. So, no. Also, it doesn't include me. I don't identify as a woman. Like, hi. Hi. Am I not a feminist? Am I not allowed in your club? Yes, you are. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> you can be my plus one. Oh, thanks, babe. No worries. <laughs> Uh, we really do need to talk about death in yep. custody. I think that's something that when we talk about abolishing the prisons, I don't know, Google Rottnest Island? There was also Palm Island um, in Queensland. Um, mm. There were also islands in the Northern Territory. A lot of islands, by the way. The history of um, Bog Coleman is just absolutely fucked. But interestingly enough, it's the first time that um, an Indigenous man shot a white man and the court just basically went, yeah, he deserved it. Palm Island riots, check it out. Yes. No, the Palm Island riots are cool. I will not call, but yeah, there's, there's some good history there. But looking at Rottnest Island and the history of Rottnest Island and that little, like, cool holiday getaway that everyone loves to go to and, like, take photos with quokkas, look at who built that building. Look at the fact that that was a fucking prison and an... Oh, I can't... I'm sorry, I can't even talk about it. Look at the history of Rottnest Island. It's, it's horrific. So, in a local context... The resistance and rejection of colonisation has occurred since white occupation. The Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody ran from 1987 to 1991 and there were 339 recommendations. Not a single one has been implemented. 2021 marks 30 years and there have been a further 474 deaths in custody and zero accountability from those who are responsible. That should be enough to tell people that the prison system doesn't work. It is absolutely well and truly fucked. But it's not. The question around how does prison abolition benefit the community, we do have this incredible interview with Karen Fletcher, who I remembered to mention up top for the first time in I don't know how long, from Flat Out Inc., um, who talk us through the incredible work that Flat Out does. And how abolition benefits everyone in the community. So today we're here to talk about your role in Flat Out and Flat Out as an organisation. Yeah, sure. Uh, do you want to tell us just quickly a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Well, my name's Karen Fletcher. Um, I'm on the board at Flat Out. I've been on the board for the last three years. But Flat Out as an organisation has been going for 30 years. So I'm a relative newcomer. But I've known about Flat Out and been a supporter of Flat Out for years I came out of uni 
20 odd 20 25 years ago and um one of the first jobs that they i went to work at legal aid and one of the first jobs they give to the newbies at legal aid in queensland was going to boggo road jail which at that time had men and women at the prison mm-hmm. um and doing um you know conferences with with people in the prison uh, men and women that affected me a lot I, I, did, I then went off and did a whole bunch of other things but um, a job later came up at the prisoners legal service in Queensland you know once you've sort of started to think about prisons and the people that are in them and go in and out of them and their families it sort of sticks with you um, yeah. I was really keen to get back into it so I took the job at prisoners legal service I was there for six years um, and during that time I got to know sisters inside and um, mm-hmm. the work of Deb Kilroy and the other sisters uh, on their board and their board of course is mainly run by women who are on the inside a lot of lifers mm. so a lot of amazing women I then went on to do a public health qualification because I got really interested in the issue of drug and or particularly drug prohibition and criminalization of drug use which you know as soon as you have anything to do with prisons you realize that one of the big reasons that prisons are there are actually to you know deal with the so-called war on drugs um, <laughs> yeah yeah uh, if we could do something about the criminalization of drug use then we would go a long way towards getting rid of prisons mm-hmm. um so i wanted to have a look at the sort of you know interconnection but in public health between drug use and criminalization yeah. so I did a masters and then um ended up in public health where i thought i would be doing a lot of work on decriminalization and i did manage to work on some stuff the um the medicinal cannabis stuff and others but actually ended up working in other sort of public health areas mm. um, and then just recent and I spent about 13 years doing that and then just recently um, in the last couple of years have gone to the Fitzroy Legal Service where there's a prisoner advocacy program so I'm back in my old space of um, being a prisoner advocate at Fitzroy. Amazing. Amazing sorry just listening to you talk about that I just got flashbacks to like me as a psych nurse working in forensics and just yeah. being like this is not it. <laughs> There are, there are huge parallels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a number of colleagues, and there's a lot of people, of course, in the prison abolition movement who also come at it from a, a mental health perspective. Mm. And of course, prisons are not the only prisons. People are locked up in psych wards and mm. immigration detention and juvenile detention and all sorts mm. of other places. They're all prisons. Absolutely. So Flat Out as an organisation, what are what are their, their major aims? Okay, so Flat Out, it's been, as I said, been going for 30 years. So it's uh, it started in arguably kind of a different era of feminism, I suppose, from now and started as an activist organisation. And it was um, originally called Women Against Prisons. So, you know, prison abolition is nothing new. Um, it was actually born out of a prison abolitionist feminist strand. And yeah. you know, I mean, a lot of people dits on the second on the third wave and the second wave. Um, yeah, that would be me. Sorry. <laughs> actually, actually, there's a lot of, you know, same with the first wave. There's a lot of radical uh, and revolutionary politics in those waves, but they kind of get kind of get written out of history, and you just hear about the you know the parliamentary reforms and the right to mm. vote, and you don't get so much to hear about the feminists who are fighting poverty and imprisonment yeah. and for the rights of unmarried mothers and all of yeah. those things and against racism in particular yeah flat out was definitely in that strand of feminism that was the more um politically radical um side of feminism and by being uh uncompromisingly on the side of the women who were inside it led the people involved to the conclusion that these institutions shouldn't exist so there's women in pri- women against prisons And they ended up applying for funding to have a service that helps get women out. So it's always had that focus Mm. of incarceration, anything that gets women out, rather than the focus on prison reform. Uh, And 
it's always had an activist focus. So it was created by activists who were, you know, volunteers who were putting on rallies and demonstrations and doing political actions, uh, but then got funding to provide a service. So the service still is focused on getting women out and helping them to stay out and helping them with their kids. Obviously, women and non non-binary folk and the main way get women out and give them the opportunity to stay out is um housing so it's a it's, it's yeah. largely focused on advocacy for housing yeah I, I was ever so slightly involved involved in the royal commission into mental health and the fact that they thought that housing and mental health was separate and it's the same with 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 people like reoffending or like support for folk outside of prisons is housing safety security extraordinary isn't it that they could even anybody could say with a straight face that mental health drug and alcohol issues post-traumatic stress child abuse and neglect family violence all of those things aren't linked to the issue of housing and poverty yeah Um, it, it just doesn't make any logical sense and in fact as we talk I guess we'll get more into this but you know a huge part of the prison abolition movement is to say let's just shift that priority we should not should not be building prisons we should be building homes yes because people need to be able to have a safe and secure place to live and for their kids to live too homes not prisons what a what a great concept for a for a campaign completely and i reckon that campaign will still happen um yeah it was it was great talking to you last year i mean just before lockdown flat out yeah. had a plan to run a campaign around the budget the state budget to protest the 1.8 billion dollars that the victorian government announced at the budget before last for the construction of prisons and the lockdown came down and all of our plans were not really able to be carried out because we couldn't we, yeah. we just couldn't organize the lockdown um, but I think the issue is still there um, yeah. and I've noticed in recent weeks that the state government has announced work is starting on some of the yeah. prison expansions that that 1.8 billion was for uh, and I think now what we probably need to do is we need a big campaign to stop the building yeah no absolutely Absolutely. So what what is the social benefits of prison abolition? Well, prison abolition sounds kind of narrow and it, and I guess <laughs> the opponents of prison abolition portray it that way as if that as if what it's about is just tearing down these buildings, letting everybody yeah. out and that's the end of it. But in fact, prison abolition is is a, a way of getting at a much more fundamental change in society where prisons are not required to keep people safe. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, in the feminist movement? I mean, I was involved being a sort of a feminist of the 80s and 90s in all those campaigns to get the police and others to take family violence more seriously. You know, it was that was back in the days, and it is still the case today, that family violence was seen as something which wasn't unlawful. It was just something that happened in homes and, you know, they would attend a bar fight not necessarily attend a family violence assault even if a woman was seriously assaulted and hurt there was a you know a tendency not to arrive and there was a big campaign in the feminist movement to get the state to take those offenses more seriously and treat them as criminal offenses and assault is an assault whether it happens in the home or in the street yeah I look back on that now and um, in the light of what's happened and I think uh, we, we're benefiting a lot now from the from the development of the prison abolition movement because we started to realise that the institutions we were calling on to respond to those things are not capable of responding to them. Prisons and police um, are institutions of violence themselves. Mm. Have got sort of systematic, sexist, homophobic, racist yeah. uh, attitudes that are incorporated into the training and the systems there. So their ability to respond 
is extremely limited and and, and mostly actually counterproductive. Yeah, um, it's it's not what the police state was designed for to yes. to protect and support women. Yes. So yeah. now getting to the stage, and I think this is the nub of what we need to talk about with prison abolition to say we need something else. Mm. yes we have to respond to family violence we have to have a situation where women can leave a bad relationship particularly a violent relationship and still be able to support their kids and live a free life the police and the prison system is not going to provide that and um, criminalizing those things is not going far enough you actually need to have the community supports to to make that happen so there needs to be enough income for if you leave a relationship that you can actually live and you can Mm. feed you need to have a house that's secure so that you can walk out. I mean, mm. it's that simple. I look back on that stuff like people saying, oh, why doesn't she just leave? Yeah. And we have all these complicated conversations about why doesn't she just leave? And the answer is often extremely simple, which is mm. that she's got nowhere to go. Mm. She's got no money to support herself or her kids and she's got no home. So that has to get sorted. And, you know, $1.8 billion for prisons where you've got a situation where women are not free to leave because there's no housing for them. It's just the, the absolutely the wrong answer to the question. Yeah. If the question is how do we provide a safe environment that's violence-free um, for women in a society which has been for hundreds of years, you know, tolerated, even condoned violence against women. How do we turn that around? We give them the option to leave, the option to be economically independent. And, you know, that's, that's the road to safety. Locking people up doesn't help because you, yeah. they can get out, you know, in a, in a year or two. We can't underestimate the fact that women do need a response. They, you know, if, if you're in a violent relationship and somebody is threatening you or is hurting you, you, as feminists, we still have a responsibility to address that and that women do feel safer. I've spoken to many women who've said, you know, one woman, woman I'm thinking of in particular said, the first good night's sleep I had was the night that, that, that my husband was taken into custody because for years, you know, he had abused me and so... I felt unsafe for years and years and years and he was taken into custody and I and that night I slept for the first mm-hmm. time. Um, we can't ignore that. We can't yeah. say that's not, a, that's not an issue. But the but the problem is that it, it doesn't solve it. He gets out in another year or two. Or even the next night. Yes. It's worse. So it's I think prison abolition is not about saying let's not worry about the violence. Mm. It's saying let's actually do something which is addressing the violence. Yeah. Uh, not perpetuating it. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Very um, violent places, prisons. You know, it's all about violence. It's all about an armed people maintaining power over people without power. It just yeah. it really is what needs to be looked at. Yeah. Yeah, I remember working in the forensic prison. It was it was always about who could be more dominant, and the the male nurses trying to dominate the male patients. And I'm just like, how does not? How do people think? The perpetuating toxic masculinity right. is actually going to rehabilitate these people. Right. Because that was the aim, obviously, of a forensic prison is you've got mental health issues, you committed a crime because of your mental health issues. So the idea is that you go into a hospital that is a prison-like system and you're you're supposed to recover and become well enough to live in the community again. But the, the system itself is traumatising. Right. And how do you get well enough to live in the society again when you're surrounded by a culture which is predicated on violence? Yes. Uh, that's what I think about jail culture. I mean, as, as 
people often say about jail, and I think it's true. I haven't been inside except for work myself. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've had a lot of people talk about the main thing you have to do when you come into prison is you have to establish yourself in the prison culture as you know not a victim. So you've got to automatically slot into that system of power over and violence and threat and distrust. How is that a preparation for going back out into the community and, and, and being in a better mental state and not doing harm to other people when the whole system is predicated on harm? Mm. So, yeah, I just think the first thing to do when we're talking about prison abolition is not focus on which every right winger that you ever talk to about <laughs> this say is prison, prison abolition is saying let the rapists and murderers out onto the street. Yeah. Yeah. And and they think that's, you know, they're all smiling and they think that's the end of the conversation. Mm. Whereas it sort of works because the level of conversation about prisons is so low in the community. You know, the media and, you know, all the sort of popular movies about prison and all of the political conversation about what prisons are for and what they do and how they keep us safe. The whole thing about com- prisons creating community safety. It just means that it's, it's quite difficult to tell a more complicated story and say mm. prison abolition is about creating something else mm. that's not prison but still keeps people safe. And it is about real community safety because real community safety is not based on locking people up. Real community safety is about creating communities where there's people don't want to harm each other. People are connected enough that they're not, that harming other people is just not culturally acceptable within that community. And we've got a long way before we get to that, but removing prisons and police from the equation is a big part of what we need to do to get there. Mm, absolutely. We were just talking before about the criminalisation of coercive control. Yeah, so I guess that's the new or the latest version of what I was talking about before in terms of looking to the police and prisons as the solution to problems. Mm. Um, there's a push now in Australia and, and in other countries for new criminal offences to be introduced. It's happened in some places in Scotland, I, I believe, and some other places they've introduced new criminal offences which not necessarily physical violence but the exercise of coercive control mm. uh, in a family violence context um, which sort of seems to make sense right family violence is usually predicated on you know sexist attitudes and um, derogatory attitudes towards women and coercive control where men deliberately try to control women by reducing their access to money controlling mm. what do, who they see, their relationships, their contact with their family, etc. That's a big red flag for mm. family violence. And you'll see if you look at cases of serious family violence, there's often decades of coercive control behind it. Or sometimes, you know, relatively short period of time where the man has tried to exercise control when there's any kind of sign that the woman is not going to bend to their will, then the violence happens. So it sort of seems uh, logical to be um, talking about addressing that. But the issue is that what's proposed is to introduce a new offence of coercive control. So that would criminalise that behaviour and, of course, result in, you know, more involvement of the police at an earlier stage uh, and the imprisonment of people. And I should say, of course, and we should have probably said this at the beginning, but the most the people that are most likely to have interventions from the police um, and be charged with these sorts of offences are people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds and people from poor backgrounds. That's where the most police and prison intervention yeah, is. Absolutely. So new offences will, will affect those communities more. And yeah, I, I guess it has a sort of an appeal 
in the sense that same sense that it sort of appealed to us in, in the 80s and 90s to say, oh, the police should respond more to family violence. We need mm. we need better training for police so that they can respond. We need more specialist police so that they can respond to family violence. You know, the whole thing that's happened in Victoria with massive expansion of police um, to deal with family violence and, you know, a massive expansion of the people who are in prison for family violence. But the issue is that while we've had more and more people being having the police and prisons involved in their lives as a result of those expansions, we are not seeing an increase in safety. And that's particularly the case for people who are at risk from from police and prisons themselves. So, you know, more of a reluctance to report um, what's going on because they don't want police and prisons and, and particularly child welfare authorities and others mm. involved in their lives. And also with family violence, we're starting to see more and more women charged with family violence offences and that's particularly the case in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities because whenever you bring in new offences as I said the most likely people to be to be charged are from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander yeah I've heard stories it's well it's pretty clear in North Queensland and in Central Australia there is a huge number of women who are being charged with family violence offences or having family violence orders made against them because police basically see the relationship as you know a sort of a he said she said situation so they'll they'll put an an order on both and then when she needs to go home because she has to get something from the house or whatever she's charged with the breach of the family violence order and ends up in prison we're seeing it in Victoria too that Family violence intervention orders are resulting in a lot of women ending up in custody for breach of family violence orders. I've also seen women be arrested for domestic violence offences because of self-defence. Yes. And they've admitted to, like, he's punched her and she's tried to defend herself. And the guy's gone, no, I didn't, but she did this. And she goes, yeah, I did that. I was defending myself. But what she's actually done is incriminated herself. Yeah. There's a huge problem. I mean, we started to talk about it in terms of misidentification of family violence. Uh, But, you know... Look at the police as an institution. So many men from with, with very traditional sexist sort of attitudes towards women. It's a cultural issue throughout the force. When they come into a situation and a bloke who looks reasonable says to them, she did this, I didn't. It's much easier for them to believe him than it is for them to believe the woman. You end up with this situation where it's just for institutional reasons, it's just much more likely that, you know, women are not going to be believed. So, yeah, I think the introducing something like coercive control is going to be similarly a big problem if, if we're going to be relying on the existing police force and the prison system mm. to minister that. It's just the wrong direction. And I guess this is this is where prison abolition and decarceration really helps me, I think, and other advocates that work within the system, is that it's a lens that you look at the issue through. Is mm. this actually going to address the violence or is this going to strengthen the institutions that are perpetuating violence? Yeah. Is this about reform of these institutions which are fundamentally flawed in themselves or is this actually going to reduce the use of those systems and increase community support and support for women independence and you know economic self-determination, Aboriginal community self-determination and control? So if you put that lens over the criminalization of coercion and control i think it puts up a big red flag it says don't it says don't go this way again don't go this way of thinking that police and prisons and coercion and control by the state is the solution to coercion and control let's yeah. actually underneath that yeah. and get rid of coercion and control itself which means we need to have a look at the economic rights of women we need to have a look at the political and social rights of women and start putting communities resources into supporting that not into supporting institutions of coercion and control themselves yeah 
empower the survivor. Right, empower yeah. the survivor and give her the capacity, not as a, just as an individual, but us as a collective of women, give mm. us capacity to be able to protect ourselves, be in places of safety uh, and say no. Yeah, amazing. You're going to, damn it, lockdown, I want to go take to the streets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think we need to take to the streets. I think um, there is a, this is a juggernaut, this this prison industrial complex and the police and the constant growing of resources for state coercion and control. It's a juggernaut. And it's so amazing to see the prison abolition movement and the, and defund the police, Mm. you know, start to get traction in the United States. And I think start to get a little bit of traction here, but as we see in the United States, our only at the moment, our only forum is the streets. We have got to get out there and start talking about the alternatives Mm. to the state violence as a way of dealing with these issues and the need for the community to change its priorities. We don't want to put all this money. We don't want to put one point, eight billion dollars of state money Mm. into prisons that make things worse we really need housing in this state Mm. public housing yeah and we need income support and i think people will understand those arguments but it's not easy to get them out in mainstream you know your podcast is is fantastic and there's you know independent media outlets that are starting to talk about these things but but i think we have to be on the streets i think we need to do build homes not prisons and we need to do a campaign that says don't spend this 1.8 billion on prisons let's let's spend it on something else let's actually improve our community Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Um, so how can we support Flat Out? What can we do? Okay, so Flat Out, I really recommend your listeners have a look at our website yeah. um, and our herstory. We've got this gorgeous herstory on there. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, which is about how we came to be and some amazing stories from the beginning. We were talking just before we did this interview about, um, you know, the need to have fun as activists and I think that the start of Flat Out and Flat Out as an organisation is a really good example of when you've got a healthy activist sort of culture that's drawing in a lot of women and other people who, who want to help, that it can become really a source of joy for people. So I would really welcome people to have a look at the website and have a look at our history and think about whether that's the sort of thing that they want to be involved in. We've got workers, obviously, we employ workers who work their guts out trying to get housing for people. But you know, when there's no housing there, that's a very difficult job. So I think the big thing for Flat Out is that we need to broaden our scope. We've always felt this, we need to broaden our scope. And we're not just desperately looking for houses for individual women, but we're trying to as you and I have been talking about, trying to have a broader conversation about the need for priorities to be broader than that. So there's opportunities through the website and our Facebook page to volunteer, to donate, to be on the board. Uh, at the moment, we've got we've got an opening on the board um, and we're particularly looking for people with financial skills and communication skills. Yeah, I think this year we'll get back to our Build Homes, Not Prisons campaign. And if you get on our website or our Facebook page, you'll get updates about that. And that's something that Flat Out would like to initiate, but would really like to be a shared uh, yeah. part of a number of organisations. So many people working in NGOs like Flatter, but also more mainstream ones who are really frustrated about the lack of housing in Victoria and know that that's the number one issue. And we we really need an outlet for that um, because slaving away at work, trying to get people houses when there's no houses, that's just a really tough gig. Yeah. And it's really been very, very tough on people for the last 10, 20 years. We need to lift our heads above that parapet and um, work with each other to, to do something on a macro scale. Incredible. So excited. So excited. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been fantastic. Lovely to talk to you. Always. So good. Thank you. 
interesting interview. Yeah, because we actually did this interview. Like, this is how long I've been trying to get this episode up. <laughs> is that we, this was like during stage four lockdown oh, that wow. we recorded that, this. Yeah, wow. That's how long ago this was. Yeah, it was months and months ago. Since then, they've actually launched um, Homes Not Prisons campaign. And there's been a really cool panel through Melbourne Uni where they discuss prison abolition. Um, and we'll pop links into the show notes. And there was also the Emerging Writers Festival did a, a panel that was presented by Nayuka Gori and Whit Gori. And there was like poetry and personal stories. And it was just, it was incredible. It was really cool. So we'll pop the show notes because as we mentioned before, we don't have that lived experience. We're just trying to step folk through what prison abolition is and how it can actually benefit community. But it's really important that we do centre the voices of folks with lived experience. And it's not just a case of prison's bad. That's like saying cancer, bad. Oh, it, it is. No, though. it is. It's it, really it fucking is, bad. But <laughs> diabetes, bad. Cardiovascular disease, bad. <laughs> Guns, bad. It's, it's not saying these things. So during the interview, Karen mentioned the Black Lives Matter protest in the US. And I, I don't know, do you, I don't think we really need to go into that. I think people know what that is. But the two main things that came out of this protest was a call for prison abolition and defunding the police. Yeah. yeah. So prison abolition, as we have previously discussed, is a bunch of things. And the one that you want to go for is the non-reformist reform, not the reform reformist. Yes. Yeah. I still, reform reformist is still the funnest one to say, though. It is. Anyway, so when we talk about defunding the police, we're talking about defesting funds from cops into social programs. And I'd argue that the first step towards that is actually disarming the police. Very much so. Yeah? Divesting is more taking it in the way that we would do public health approach. So it would be looking at the uh, social determinants of crime as opposed to the social determinants of health. I keep using that phrase on this podcast. It's such a geek. You are a nerd. It's fine. We love it. It's good. New Zealand does not have armed cops. The United Kingdom does not have armed cops on the streets. Yeah. How is it the head of the empire has their citizens not under armed guard? And yet our... I don't know. I mean, have you seen football hooligans? (laughs) I'm not suggesting that we start shooting football hooligans, but if the United Kingdom can manage with cops without guns being on the streets, why can't we? But on a psych ward, I can de-escalate people. That's the thing. Australian cops are not really taught in de-escalation. No, they're taught I have a gun and I have um, power and control over other people, which makes you wonder about the the types of people who want to join the police force and why 40% of cops abuse their wives. Anyway, so we are constantly under the threat of surveillance. We are constantly in fear of being arrested for something. And this is all feeds into coercive control. The amount of weapons that cops have on their person while they're just walking up and down Burke Street Mall, like, I just don't think on a Tuesday morning they need to have, like, two lots of pepper spray, four guns and a fucking taser. I think that might just be, you know, a little bit of clear intimidation. When you're when you're more armed than a, than a member of the Australian Defence Force in the infantry and you're walking the streets of, of Melbourne during the commuter rush... Yeah. What purpose do you serve? It's fine because they have a pride badge on. So it's fine. More trans drone pilots. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we are talking about defunding the police. We are talking about disarming the police. We are talking about ending prisons, yeah? Yes. So in order to make this actually safe, like because people will commit crime when there is a need, 
yeah? So if you don't address the need, then people will break that law. So by addressing the, the underlying causes of crime, what I mean by that is addressing poverty, improving the rates of welfare, access to healthcare, education, housing is a massive one. This is where our money needs to go, not into funding fucking robocops. We need to decriminalise sex work and we need to end the war on drugs. We need to decriminalise substances. Very much so. The war on, Ending the war on drugs is by far one of the best... And I hate to use an economic measurement here, um, so I won't actually pull up the number. You can go and Google the number yourself if you really want to know. But it, yeah, you're lazy and the reason, cunts. And the reason I suggest <laughs> going and Googling it is because you will come across material that you have not experienced and is very much beyond the scope of, uh, of this podcast. Once we've, once we've ended the war on drugs, once we've redistributed, <laughs> once we've done all of these things, what we want to do is replace the justice system. It's currently the legal system now. Nobody gets justice from it. True. So when we talk about punitive justice, we talk about people being removed from community. So that's the prisons. But we can see this happening as early as childhood. Um, negative behaviour being like being addressed by timeouts, go to your room. And this is just reinforcing the prison complex from like a really early age. It's basically, you know, you're teaching children that essentially when they do bad things... They just have to go somewhere else for a while. Don't teach them why. We don't teach yeah. yeah. It's going, go sit in the corner for five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And think about what you've done. And you're spending your whole time thinking about how you wrote on the wall and how cool it was. Yeah. Like, and how great your picture looked. Uh, yeah. Restorative justice may, mostly focuses on, on individuals. It is very foreign to the concept of most Australians. Um, we are going to bring this, we are going to do this with Christianity <laughs> because essentially the um, idea of forgiveness is so ingrained into most people's psyche about how forgiveness works and about how you go and say sorry and then and then it's over and done with. No, with restorative justice, which is why it's such a revolutionary concept in so many different, particularly Christian nations, is that essentially you are making restitution. You are trying to, you are actively... Mm trying to put it back the way that it was before you broke it you know and mm-hmm. it's and it's not it, it is a very it is a Which very is... foreign concept to a lot of white people because christianity basically tells you that yes you've hurt somebody go and apologize but isn't it just like atoning for your sins like you just have to do a couple Confess of Hail Marys and our fathers and you're all forgiven like when you apologize or when you try and make it right you don't make it right with the person you make it right with god that's Pretty much it. It's not real. You know, and and going with the whole good place, you know, there are so many good place quotes we could have used in this. Yeah. About moral desert. But yeah, no, with Christianity, it is literally just, um, you know, penance before God, not before the person you've hurt. Mm. And, you know, there will be people who will write in Mm. and get very angry with us because we didn't consider their particular flavor of of Christianity, which is a little bit different, but still, we're (laughs) not having that discussion. About the difference between how Catholics view forgiveness and how evangelicals yeah, just, view forgiveness, but the I'm sorry, I'm just I'm bored already talking about it. I I know, but it, it, it's kind of important because this is the framework of which most of our society grows up in, and it and it seems so revolutionary because yeah, we don't no, do this. So one of the big problems with restorative justice, even though it seems very nice on the outside, it doesn't actually address why people steal or engage in harmful behaviours, or do any of this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's the behavioural modification. And it's very uh, targeted and interpersonal, and it's it's not it's not actually creating any social no. change. There's some things that have happened in this world that I can't even think of how you would actually make that right. There, there are just some things that we have done to people 
that there is just no way to make that right. There is no way to restore that. However, <laughs> transformative justice looks at the whole system and asks why do people need to steal and how do we prevent these things from happening in the first place? Mia Mingus describes transformative justice as a way of responding to violence and harm without creating more violence and harm. And this is the essentially the antithesis of the prison complex. So this is transformative justice is actually helping communities grow. And that's where we need to be putting our energies. Yeah, and to bring it back to the public health analogy, transformative justice is the preventative aspects, the maintenance. Mm. Restorative justice tends to be the primary intervention. But guess who hates transformative justice? White people. The state. White people. (laughs) Everyone. Everyone, because you can't profit off transformative justice. Although you could, I reckon it would actually be wildly profitable Uh, if people learnt what enough meant. If we got rid of greed and we got rid of oppressive power Just overconsumption. And we learnt what enough was, yeah, I think we would would realise that transformative justice is actually wildly profitable. And if we started seeing the the value in happy, healthy communities as opposed to having a fucking Audi four-wheel drive, like if we saw the the social benefit in that, then hey, maybe there might be actually some good systemic change. Yeah, funny that. Uh, Essentially, like the transformative justice thing of going, we spend billions on policing and enforcement and incarceration. We already have a healthcare system. And we know that, for example... It will only take a little bit more to give everyone access to all health for free. A little bit more. Yeah. Well, it, it doesn't even take that much more. Yeah. Just tax no, well, the rich. The thing is, if you start divesting <laughs> from police and start investing in, in transformative justice, take this big pile of money that you have yeah. for the police, and then you push a little bit more to Medicare, mm. and then all of a sudden people get dental included in their Medicare, and they get oncology and mm. pathology services and mental health. And housing. We already have land that is already allocated to housing people, and we call them prisons. Knock down a prison. Yeah. Build social housing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the actual prisons need to be yep. knocked down. Give people more welfare. Get that money flowing in the community. And then once it does, as we've seen in places like North Queensland and rural Queensland, jobs were made. Unemployment yeah. went down, which yeah. made more jobs. And you do these little things and you slowly whittle down the police budget until people's needs are met. Mm. And let's not pretend that the police ever actually helped anyone. They are there to write the report for your insurance, if you have insurance. Yeah. The, the cops exist to protect the state that don't exist to protect communities. They're there like they were back in England, protecting yeah. the docks from you. Yes. Fuck. We didn't even touch on the capitalistic nature of prisons. Be mindful that it sounds as though like for-profit prisons are coming to Australia if they're not here already. And we as a community need to really push back against that. It's not a safe response. It's not a healthy response. It's not how we should be treating vulnerable vulnerable people. We should be looking at not what they're doing, but why are they doing it? Why are they breaking the law? Why are people stealing? It's not because they want to be shit cunts. It's because they're trying to feed themselves. The only other thing that essentially the, that we might need to add is basically going, well, what do you do about rapists? Yeah. There are no prisons. What do you do with the rapists? And that's a good question. Because I, I think that transformative justice does actually address that. Because there are programs, like rape, so much of, of that is about power and control. So if we take a transformative justice approach, where we are actually talking to men and young boys and young girls about what consent looks like, what's healthy relationships look like, I think we can actually do a really good job of doing away with this toxic masculine trope of power and control. That's all transformative justice. It doesn't mean that rape is never going to happen. 
but it means that we're going to address it in a more justice-orientated framework. Yeah, and we'll be looking at at these issues not just as a a one-off incident, but looking at the whole picture and what actually caused this person to engage in this behaviour. Cool. It's it's not just the what, it's the why. Also, we'll burn the church and there will be no milk milkshakes and tacos. Oh, I like tacos. Burritos are better. <laughs> You're not wrong. Do you like a bit of rice? Uh, yeah, look, it's, yeah. I, I don't like the crispiness of the shell and it gets everywhere. Burritos just, yeah. Oh, I always, yeah, I'm a, I'm a soft shell tar person. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like a soft shell. But essentially, that's a burrito. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> a burrito by another name. <laughs> It's just as sweet. Anyway. I want burritos now. Yeah, I know. I think I'm going to... Oh, fuck. I'm going to have pizza for dinner. Fuck. Damn it. Anyway, go check out Flat Out Inc. Go look at Sisters Inside. Go look at IRL Bookshop. And make sure that when you're talking about this, we're centering the voices of people who were directly affected by the prison complex. I mean, like we said before, we haven't even touched on how prisons are used in a capitalistic sense. So that's something that maybe we'll address down the line with some actual... The violence of the legal system in general. Patriarchal violence. That exists yeah, within within the, the legal system is profound and there is there is no justice like you said before in this alleged justice system there is no justice the fact that you have to go to court to convince someone that you were raped is to me that's barbaric yeah I mean that is the barbaric burden of, the burden of proof is on the victim yeah I mean I think they're looking at addressing that which is like again that's reform that's your, your reform reformist which is a, don't get me wrong small steps are good and anything that we can do to sort of loosen the collar on how oppressive this system is, yeah. is good. But we need to look at long-term goals. The fact that this system isn't designed to support us, it's not designed to work so that we have more freedom, so that we are supported and that we are safe. It is designed to oppress us and keep us oppressed so that the ruling class can do what the ruling class needs to do in order to maintain power yeah. and control. And definitely go check out more. Bunch of writing on that. Angela Davis. Also, let's just centre the voices of women in this conversation because it's always women um, who are the worst affected. Women, trans folk, gender diverse, sex workers, Indigenous people. Don't don't go read a bunch yeah. of Foucault. Don't. Well, obviously, is how I can best dis- dis- because he stole it from other people, particularly <laughs> black women. Did he? Did he actually though? Are you being serious? Look, I'm going to go with probably the first black woman who wrote about this would have been Brains Dead, uh, Tools Master's House. Oh, Audrey Lord. Yeah, would have literally been yeah. one of the first people to write about prison abolition, well and truly beyond. Is it 1974? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that that is a definitive, but you can apply. You can apply her work to prison abolition. Yeah, absolutely. Foucault, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Just go read anything that's not written by cis white men. And if it's in the philosophy section, just set fire to it. It's fine. No one will be at a loss. Pick up the history section before you pick up the philosophy section. Lucy Parsons. Go read some shit by Lucy Parsons. Angela Davis, Sojourner Truth, Audrey Lord, Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks, brilliant. Yeah. Old Mate Bell. But also, uh, I haven't read this book yet, but Roddy Gorry, uh, an Indigenous human, I'm not sure pronouns, they wrote Black and Blue, which is about the prison complex in Australia. And I I haven't read it yet, so I'm very keen to read it, though it sounds incredible. Google Deb Kilroy and anything and everything that they've spoken at. They're amazing on this topic. Anything from Flat Out, like get involved if you can. The um, Homes Not Prisons campaign is just in the very early stages. So if you go to homesnotprisons.com.au, it will take you to the campaign page and we'll step you through everything that's going on. Um, Sam Warman has designed a really cool poster. There's really cool stuff going on, so get involved with that. There's an open letter that you can sign on to. There's stuff happening. Like There are people who are organised and getting involved in this stuff. It's the way forward 
I don't know what else to say on this. Is there anything else to say on this? All cops are bastards. Yeah, they are not your friends. Oh, yeah. No, I actually do have something to say on this. You are not obliged to, gi- to give yeah. any information to a police officer. Do not talk to the cops without a lawyer present, ever. I don't care how white you are. Do not yeah. talk to the cops. No, nah, they're not your friends. Don't give them help. Don't tell them your name. And for more information on that, you should go to Melbourne Activist Legal Support, uh, which is, I think, melz.org.au, and check out their stuff because they do a lot of this uh, uh, police accountability stuff, which is really cool. Yeah, fuck the state. Bring on the guillotine. So if you enjoyed this episode, then please like share and subscribe show your mum show your dad get get your cousins to have a listen <laughs> i don't know i just assume that everyone's as close with their family as i am this is really bad okay thank you please share it around and leave a review it helps the metrics cheeky like yeah do that that'd be we, we would really appreciate it that would be wonderful do you feel dirty now this is gross i fucking hate it i still think that if people like it then they'll leave a review and if they don't like it they won't and i don't care